I started this series uh, by saying that this story is not primarily about a fish swallowing a man, although that's probably the most famous part of the story. That's the part that most of us remember uh, from Sunday school when we were kids. But I said that this story is so much more than that. It's not primarily about a fish swallowing a man. And week after week, we've seen how true that is. I said last week and maybe even the week before that there's so much here, there is so much here that I could probably spend the next year preaching on Jonah and just going down various bunny trails. Um, but we've seen week in and week out that Jonah is a story of sin and grace. It's a storied presentation of the gospel, really. It's a story of sin and grace. It's a story of desperation and deliverance. It's a story that exposes all the things besides God that we build our lives on. Uh, it's, it's a story about where we find our identity, where we locate our identity. It's a story about idolatry and the things that we actually depend on to make life worth living, to make us feel safe and secure, to, to make us feel like we matter. It's, it's a story that shows how quick you and I are to run from God and how quick God is to run after us. It's a story which shows that while our sin reaches far, God's amazing grace reaches farther. All of that's here. It's a story about how God spares no expense to rescue fugitives of mercy like me, like you, like Jonah. So the gospel in Jonah is that even though we give up on God time and time again, God never gives up on us. And the reason God comes after us over and over and over again is not because God needs us, but because we need God. We've seen that week in and week out. Jonah's story in that regard is, is our story. And it's a story that shows how God relentlessly pursues rebels like us. Not to angrily strip away our freedom, but to affectionately strip away our slavery to lesser gods in order that we might become truly free. So in all the ways that Jonah is exposed, we are exposed. For all the reasons that God runs after Jonah, he runs after us. God's mission in Jonah's life is the same as God's mission in your life, which is the same it's same as God's mission in my life, and that is to set us free. God is, even here in this story, as we see throughout the Bible, the great liberator of captives. Um, so we get to the end of the story, as we saw last week, and Jonah's moaning, and he's groaning, and he's pouting, and he's complaining, and he wishes for death. Three times he wishes for death in chapter four, because things aren't going his way. And we get to the end of the story, and Jonah is actually worse than when the story began. Okay, it didn't start off well with Jonah. God called him to go to an enemy city to preach repentance, and Jonah went in the opposite direction. He went in the absolute opposite direction. So it didn't start well for Jonah. And you think, how could it get any worse? I mean, running from God is not only a serious thing, but it's a stupid thing. It's a futile thing. He's not going to get away with this. So, and he's very proud and pompous, thinking that his way is better than God's way. So it doesn't start off good with Jonah. And you think, well, it can't get worse. It actually gets much worse. 
And by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, we see that Jonah is angrier with God at the end than he was at the beginning. I mean, throughout the story, Jonah actually gets worse and worse as the story goes on. Now, that fact alone flies in the face of those who think that Christians are getting better and better every day. Stronger and stronger, more and more faithful every day. There is this popular notion out there that if you're a Christian, God's work in you is such that you are getting better every day, stronger every day, more and more faithful every day. And that's just empirically untrue. In other words, we can look at our own lives, and if we're honest, we would have to admit that that's not true, that every day with Jesus is not sweeter than the day before, okay? And we see that with with Jonah. Some days are good, some days are bad. Some days we exercise the God-given faith that we have, and other days we are are as faithless as a pagan. Um, And Jonah's story proves that, Um, because the truth is, that real spiritual growth is not, I'm getting stronger and stronger and more and more faithful every day. Okay, that's not what spiritual growth is. Don't believe what your Sunday school teacher may have told you, if that's what he or she told you. Um, That is not spiritual growth. Spiritual maturity is not, I'm getting stronger and stronger and more and more faithful every day. Rather, spiritual growth is, I'm becoming increasingly aware of how weak and unfaithful I am and how strong and faithful Jesus is for me. That's spiritual growth. And that's what's going on here. Now, let me just sort of add a parenthetical mini-sermon here in this. I'm going to interrupt myself just to sort of address one common objection to that idea because I, I talk about that stuff and have defined spiritual growth that way for many, many years, not because it's my definition, but because it's the Bible's definition. I mean, it's telling that the Apostle Paul, arguably one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, however we define great, I mean, you know, he's he's up there. You know, you got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, okay? And then C.S. Lewis, okay? I don't know, scratch that. You've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, Billy Graham, then C.S. Lewis, okay? Mom, you love that, don't you? You love that. Uh, she's watching. She's watching. Mother's always watching. Um, but, I mean, the Apostle Paul was, I mean, he was, you know, arguably, I mean, the guy planted tons of churches. He wrote half the New Testament. I mean, you know, everybody, whether you, you're in church or not, knows something about the Apostle Paul. They've at least heard of him. At the end of his life, he says, I'm the worst guy that I know. I have a friend named Jean LaRue who says, if you're not the worst sinner you know, you don't know yourself very well, okay? Well, he's just echoing what the Apostle Paul said. I'm the worst guy that I know. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the least least of all the saints, he said. Well, that's because as you get closer to God... As you move closer to God, you become more acutely aware of your blemishes, your sin, your faults, your failures, your weaknesses. So the person who thinks that they're stronger and more faithful is actually the person who's further from God. 
The person who's closer to God realizes just how weak and unfaithful they are and how strong and faithful God is in the person of Jesus for them. That's spiritual growth, okay? Um, and so there's this um, common objection that uh, I hear from time to time um, that says, okay, well, what about that whole idea that, um, you know, once we become Christians, the old is gone, the new has come, you know? Uh, I mean, doesn't that mean that we are now more than conquerors, okay? They take certain Bible verses or passages and they uh, say those sorts of things. Um, And there's this idea, the underlying idea or assumption in the question is that being made new means that you've gone from bad to good, okay? That's not what it means. Your life proves that, okay? So does mine, all right? it's, that's not what it means. Number one, it means that your status before God legally has changed. You've gone from an orphan to a son. You've gone from uh, a slave to free. You've gone from being outside of God's family to inside of God's family. Your, your legal stature has changed before God. You are now in forever. You are legally justified before God because of what Jesus said. So that's one of the things that it means. The old is gone, the new has come. Um, But let me just say, uh, in light of the way this question is typically posed to me about, doesn't it, when you become a Christian, being made new, does it mean the the old is gone, the new has come? Listen, uh, yes. And let me suggest to you that the primary evidence of your newness is the humility to admit your badness, okay? That's the first thing. So rather than thinking the primary evidence of my newness is that I'm getting better and I'm getting stronger and I'm, I'm more faithful and I'm, I'm more stout as a Christian. Uh, no, the primary evidence of your newness is the humility to admit your badness, okay? It's, it's the willingness to acknowledge that you're not good, that you're not strong. The primary evidence of your faith is the self-awareness to confess your faithlessness, okay? Um, Because what that tells you is that you're banking everything on God and what God has done for you. And because you are banking everything on God and what God has done for you, you are now free to admit the truth about yourself. Um, And Jonah proves this. Okay, you know, I just said, we get to the end of the book, he's worse at the end than he was at the beginning. So how does, how does Jonah prove this? Well, most Bible scholars agree that Jonah wrote Jonah, which means that Jonah tells his own story here. Now, that's massively significant, okay? Uh, let me ask you this. Um, if you wrote an autobiography of a particular season in your life, would you choose a season of success or a season of failure? Um, I mean, most of us spend our lives concealing our worst parts and showing only our best parts. We filter out our blemishes. Okay, we, we edit our profiles. We highlight our successes and we desperately hide and conceal our failures. We are Photoshop people living in a Photoshop world with other Photoshop people. Um, 
We're scared to death of being rejected, so we work our whole lives to present the most acceptable and lovable version of ourselves. We're terrified to tell the truth about ourselves because if people really knew us, they wouldn't accept us. They wouldn't love us. But here's what Jonah discovered, okay? And the very fact that he wrote this story and showed us who he really was in all of his weakness, in all of his sin, in all of his selfishness, in all of his arrogance, in all of his faithlessness, the very fact that he wrote this story and tells this part of his life to the world tells us exactly what Jonah discovered. When you know that God loves you, you can talk truthfully about your sins and struggles without being afraid of other people's disapproval because the only approval you need is God's and you already have it. In other words, you can risk being rejected by others because you'll never be rejected by God. This is what Jonah discovered about God. When you know that God loves you unconditionally, you don't need everybody else to like you. And that frees you to be more real. It frees you to be more honest, which is why 1 John says, perfect love casts out all fear. Well, who's perfect love? God's perfect love. When I know that God loves me unconditionally, uninterruptedly, perfectly, well, that begins to remove the fear that I have to tell you the truth about myself because if I tell you the truth about myself and you reject me as a result, while that might make me sad, I'll be okay because God will never reject me and it's his approval that I need and it's his approval that I already have. Um, so God proved to Jonah that there was nothing he could do, there was nothing Jonah could do or fail to do that would ever cause God to leave him. And that gave Jonah the courage he needed to tell the truth about himself in this story. And I've said this before, but those who are the most free are those who have the least fear telling the truth about themselves. And those who have the least fear telling the truth about themselves are those who know at the deepest levels how unconditionally loved by God they are. So God's never gonna give you up love for Jonah. Any Rick Astley fans out there? Never gonna give you? Okay. Um, that's what song came to mind as I was writing this yesterday. That God's never gonna give you up love for Jonah is what gave Jonah the security he needed to share his most embarrassing season of life with the world. And you know what that tells me? That at the end, he actually does get it. We get to the end of the story and we're like, this guy's gotten worse. And then you realize he's the one who wrote the story. And you go, maybe he's actually gotten better. You know, when we stop obsessing over our need to get better, and to prove that we're better, that is what the Bible means by getting better, okay? I, we, we get it backwards. We get it confused. We, we define betterness in a very worldly kind of way. But when we stop obsessing over our need to get better and over our, um, over our ability to present ourselves as better, that's actually what the Bible means by getting better. And so if that's true, then we get to the end of the story 
And we realize Jonah's willingness to tell the truth about himself in all of its, all, all of its unedited shame and embarrassment actually proves that he knows he's unconditionally loved by God. Throughout the story, we see, I mean, that's one of the reasons Jonah in this story highlights his sin in God's grace because he wants people to see that God is eternally merciful, that he's amazingly gracious, that he's unconditionally loving, and that there's nothing we can do or fail to do that will ever tempt God to leave us or forsake us. And that's what gives him the courage to tell the truth about himself, not just in a conversation or in a sermon that won't be heard in 100 years from now, but here. It's been, I mean, Jonah's dirty laundry has been hanging out in the public square for hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years. What we know most about Jonah is just how stupid and disobedient he was, and he's okay with that because he knows God loves him. That is just huge. Um... If you think, and sadly, there are many Christians who do think this, if you think that God's primary goal for you is that you be an example of moral sturdiness, that you be an example of moral goodness, rather than a train-wrecked trophy of his grace, if you really believe that God's primary goal for you is that you be an example of moral goodness, then you will never be honest about your deepest sins and your deepest struggles and your deepest secrets, ever, ever. You'll never be honest about that stuff with yourself or others. You'll always feel the pressure to pretend that you're better than you truly are, always. And that is exhausting. Just, just exhausting. But it's not only exhausting for you, it's also not helpful to others. Stacy and I have a friend on the west coast of Florida named Robin Bright, who's in recovery herself and for a time ran a recovery place for women. And she says this, never hide the dark chapters of your life. The parts where God brought you through is what the world is most desperate to hear. That... This is what I love about Jonah's story. Jonah's unedited honesty about his own failures points us to the God who loves and uses people who fail because people who fail are all that there are. I just, his willingness to put himself out there like this helps me immeasurably. Immeasurably. Because what it does is it, by him, in a sense, um, uh, not concealing his badness and his sin, he points us to the God who loves sinners. He points us to the one who comes and rescues sinners, who pursues sinners, who relentlessly rescues rebels like us. You see, um, when we tell the truth about our fears and insecurities and struggles and secrets, when we admit that we are selfish and arrogant and controlling and self-righteous and faithless and unforgiving and so on and so forth, that is when we bear witness to a Savior who came not for the righteous but for sinners. I don't know where we get this idea that we have to, we have to appear so clean before the world that we, we end up looking like people Jesus didn't even have to die for. I mean, it makes no sense at all. 
And what it shows is that we're, we're more interested in what people think about us than what people think about him. Um, I'm not sure where we got the idea that our goodness and strength is what qualifies us to have a powerful impact on people. Because the truth is, none of us are good and strong, first of all, okay? And our impact on people becomes powerful when we admit our badness and our neediness and we point to God's goodness. That's when the, our impact becomes powerful. Trust me, those, those parts of you that you are most fearful of disclosing, the parts of you that get jealous, the parts of you that are greedy, the parts of you that lust for what you don't have, the parts of you that hate, the parts of you that doubt, the parts of you that thirst for vengeance, the parts of you that are unwilling to forgive, the parts of you that are painfully insecure, all those things, those are the very parts that will be most helpful to people if we admit them. Opening up about your struggles helps people so much more than talking about your strengths. You know that to be true. I, I, you know, I've, I've told you this before. I have the, the privilege of spending uh, time on a regular basis in recovery places. People who are in one way, shape, or form admitting that they need help, that they're powerless because they have an addiction of some sort. And I'm telling you, I, I um, every time... I go and spend time with people in those kinds of recovery places, I'm reminded of a couple things. Number one, we're all in recovery, okay? It's, it's not like you have to be an addict of some sort of substance to be considered a person in recovery. You're all, we're all in recovery. If you're a human being, you're in recovery. You're broken, I'm broken, we live in a broken world, which means we're in recovery. If you've ever hurt anybody or if you've ever been hurt by anybody, if you've ever betrayed anybody or you've ever been betrayed by somebody, if your heart has ever been broken in any way, shape, or form, if expectations you've had of other people have gone unmet, I could go down the list forever and ever to prove to you we are all in recovery. And the fact that we are all idolaters, as we've seen uh, throughout Jonah, proves that we're all in recovery from counterfeit gods that we've been depending on to be for us what only God can be. Things that we depend on to fill the void in our life that only God is intended to fill. Blaise Pascal said that we are all born with a God-shaped void in our soul that only God is big enough to fill. St. Augustine said that we were made for you, O God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. So throughout the ages, we've seen that people are in, everybody's in recovery. And that means there are two kinds of people in this world. There are, there are people in recovery who know they are, and there are people in recovery who think they aren't. But there's no one who's not in recovery, okay? Um, and one of the things that is such a massive blessing to me when I spend time with people in recovery is, one, it reminds me that I'm in recovery, too, and it also, it's so much more refreshing. As you know, it's so much more refreshing to be in a room with people who know that they're weak than to be in a room with people who think that they're strong. I mean, you know that to be true. When you're sitting with somebody and they're talking to you about their struggles and they're talking to you about, um, you know, their, their weaknesses and they're confessing things to you, uh, that makes you feel a lot less alone in life than if they're constantly bragging about their successes and their strength. I know that um, I know that in marriage, for instance, it's not the couples who 
seemingly have it all together that have been the most help to me. It's, it's, it's people who have crashed and burned, okay? People who have really suffered, people who have blown it, people who live with guilt and shame and as a result have to run to the God of grace every day. Those are the people that have helped me the most. Um, I mean, opening up about your struggles helps people so much more than talking about your strengths. We know that to be true. I mean, people may be somewhat impressed when you share your successes with them, but they connect with you. And they feel less alone when you share your failures with them. So people may be, you can share your successes and your accomplishments and um, you, know, you can embellish your accomplishments and make people think that you're bigger than you are, more important than you are. And, I mean, we're all guilty of doing that from time to time, uh, some more than others. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we don't like to be around people like that. I mean, I don't like to be around people like that. I like to be around people who are real, people who are honest, people who when I say, hey, man, how's it going? They're like, not really that good. Now, I don't want you at that point to bend my ear for the next three hours telling me how bad your life is and how you're a victim of everything in this world. Like, I'm not talking about that nonsense. I'm talking about real, bona fide struggle, real, bona fide admission of weakness, powerlessness, the need for outside help. See, by sharing his failures with us, Jonah, Jonah points us to the one who promised to never leave us or forsake us. By sharing his failures with us, Jonah points us to the one who always meets our rebellion with his rescue. By sharing his failures with us, Jonas points us, J Jonas, jo Jonah points us uh, to the one who constantly and who perpetually meets our guilt with his grace and our faults with his faithfulness. Um, by sharing his worst season in life, I mean, I'm sure this Jonah had other seasons in life, some that would have been much more impressive to put out there for thousands of years. Um, but I, I love how not just here, but in the Bible as a whole, you know, God doesn't edit out the bad stuff. We do. You know, I don't know about you, but the only thing I really heard about David in Sunday school was how he had the faith to defeat the giant of Goliath. And if we had the faith of David, we can defeat the giants in our life too. Now let's close in prayer. Or dare to be a Daniel or whatever. We turn these, we turn these sinners into heroes that we're supposed to emulate. God doesn't do that. God reserves the title of hero for one person in the Bible. And that is Jesus. And so everything we read in the Bible that discloses the wrongness of humanity is meant to show us ourselves. And everything in the Bible that shows us the greatness of God is intended to point us to him. Everything. Um, and so I'm glad that Jonah chose to reveal this season in his life. It's an encouragement to me to, to see the way Jonah was stubborn, the way Jonah was rebellious, the way Jonah was selfish, the way Jonah was all of these things because I know that's true of me. And to see that God never gives up on him reminds me that God never gives up on me. It's so much more of a help. Um, let me say this. Um, and I'll kind of wrap it up this way. Um, 
You know, acknowledging the worst parts of me is, is never easy. It's, it's embarrassing. Okay, I, don't, I don't, when, when, I'm, when I'm getting ready to preach on a Sunday morning and I have something included in the sermon that is a, a personal revelation of uh, something in my life or a season in my life that is um, bad, it's embarrassing to stand up in front of people and talk about it, okay? It's never comfortable for me. I mean, uh, when, last week when I read to you the suicide letter that I wrote six years ago, I mean, that was hard. It was humiliating. It just was. Um, every time I stand up and say that I was unfaithful to my first wife and it therefore ended in divorce and it was this public scandal, I cringe. It's embarrassing stuff to admit. I don't like to do it. It's unenjoyable saying that stuff in public. It's extremely uncomfortable admitting that stuff in front of people. Disclosing my failures is not fun. I'm not suggesting that it's fun for me or for you or for anybody. But listen, I don't, I don't know of a better way to personally illustrate the best parts of God if I don't first tell you some of the worst parts of me. I don't know how to do it. I just, Jonah does it. I feel like there's good precedent in the Bible to do it. The Apostle Paul does it. Um, David does it in Psalm 51, admitting his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered and all of that stuff. I mean, I just, I don't know. I don't know of a more effective way to personally illustrate just how amazingly good and gracious God is if I don't first tell you about his goodness in my life, especially in the face of my badness. I just, I don't know how to do it. I mean, I'm telling you right now, God is not looking for another Photoshop church with another Photoshop pastor. I can promise you that. And I'm like, I'm done with that stuff. And, and, and to be honest with you, I, I, I think the days... The days of a good and clean person telling other good and clean people how to be better and cleaner are over. Okay, over. These days are over. Um, people are craving realness and authenticity and transparency and honesty about how God's love and grace touch us in those places where we feel the most guilt and shame, where we feel the, the weakest and the worst. It's amazing to me. It's amazing. If I, I, if I walk away from a conversation and I, upon reflecting on that conversation, realize that I was sort of braggadocious, I not only walk away kind of embarrassed that I was that way, but that probably really didn't help this person. If anything, it hurt this person because it made them feel like I'm better than them, more accomplished than them, stronger than them that they should become more like me. Um, but when I sit down and look at people who are sharing their struggles and their secrets and their sins with me, and I look at them and say, dude, me too. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about something in my life right now. Let me tell you about my current fears, my current secrets, my current struggles. Let me tell you about what I've, what I've lived through, what God has carried me through. Um, I mean, the sanctuary, let, let me be very clear on this, okay? Because we're young, we're a new church, and I want to make it abundantly clear what we are and what we're not. Because this isn't for everybody, and that's totally fine. It's absolutely fine. It's not for everybody. 
Um, it's, only for the, it's only for the real right people. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's not for everybody. It's just not. I mean, I, when I say that the sanctuary is a, is a recovery place masquerading as a church, wink, wink, I'm kind of telling the truth. It really is. But let me tell you what it's not, okay? The sanctuary is not a gym for spiritual muscle flexing. Okay, it is not. Um, it is a triage for the wounded where moral insurance is not checked when you walk in the door. Um, it is a place where, by God's grace, all are welcome and treated no matter who they are or what they've done. When Stacy and I sensed God's calling to come here, one of the things that was crystal clear to us is that we will go if we can create the kind of space that would welcome people like us. With our sordid stories and our sordid past and all of our failures and mess-ups, um, that, that, those are the people I want to spend the rest of my life with. And if we, if, if we have the freedom to go and create that kind of space, I'm in. I'm in. I don't want to have been in church my whole life, and I've been in church leadership for most of my adult life. And, uh, and I, to be honest, I just, I don't want to go back to that. I don't. I look back at, at that time in my life, which I'm grateful for so many things, so many things I'm grateful for. And I look back at that time in my life and, and I think about the, the huge blessings that God gave me in so many different ways. But I also don't like the person I was in retrospect. I don't. And, um, and I, I believe there's something to Jesus saying when the religious people kept coming after him and he just said, essentially, I haven't come for the righteous, I've come for the sinner, okay? I mean, this message of uh, desperation and deliverance, failure and forgiveness, this isn't what the people who think they're strong want to hear. They're not gonna listen. Uh, until something happens in their life that breaks them down and makes them realize their own powerlessness. That's maybe when their eyes will be open and they'll realize that they're in recovery too and they're powerless too and they need help as well. But for the most part, I, and I, I've said this jokingly, you know, because of my own story, which is scandalous in so many different ways, um, but not uncommon, but scandalous, given the position that I held when it happened. Um, there's the one, the one benefit, and this is probably, there may be one or two benefits to me being your pastor, okay? Here's one of them, that because I'm the pastor of this church, Pharisees will not come walking through the door. And the reason is because none of them think I should be pastoring a church, so they'll, they'll never desecrate themselves by darkening our door. Now... Now I say that, and let me add a word of warning, that we can oftentimes become very, very proud that we're not Pharisees, which is ironically very Pharisaical, okay? And it goes something like this. We know we're bad. They think they're good. That makes us better than them. See the irony? Okay? So... We have to be on guard. We all have an inner lawyer. We all have a, an inner Pharisee. We're not immune to that stuff. We can become very self-righteous about the fact that we're not self-righteous, okay? So we have to be on guard for that also. We're not better 
because we know we're not good, um, even though we may think we're better because we admit that we're not good. Um, so I, 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 I applaud your applause and also want to issue a word of warning. Let's not get too excited about the fact that we are what they're not, okay? Because that's pharisaical also, becoming a Pharisee to the Pharisees, so to speak. Um, nevertheless, they still won't come walking through the door because I'm the pastor here, so that's a good thing. Uh, we want to be a church where those who have failed find God's forgiveness because God's forgiveness has found us. We, we want to be a church that sticks with people as they stumble through life the way God sticks with us as we stumble through life. We want the sanctuary to exercise outrageous grace, the kind of grace that refuses to give up on those trapped by sin, the way God refuses to give up on us. That's what we want. We are, as my old friend Steve Brown has said for many years, we are just beggars showing other beggars where we found bread. That's it. We are a church full of Jonahs that welcome other Jonahs in the name of the one who has forever welcomed us. Not because of our goodness, but because of his grace. Let's pray together.